So I'd like to welcome those of you who've just arrived to join this retreat period at Kaya House. And uh, equally welcome those of you who've been here for a little while or a longer while. Something about being received into the space of our life that's, I think, very important to recognize as part of what happens here. Receiving ourselves and receiving our life. And to see that in arriving into this world, into this circumstance of a retreat, we have the opportunity to to look at what's really important, what's really significant. And one of the themes that uh, occurs again and again in Dharma teachings that's recognized as being important to reflect upon, important to consider, is the theme of, of death. The implications of this, the significance of this is something that the Buddha spoke of again and again that he referred to as one of the uh, heavenly messengers who through his contact with someone who had died just an unknown stranger but nonetheless someone who was dead and seeing that inspired him or contributed to inspiring him to undertake his journey to seek wisdom, to seek awakening, the noble search, as it's called. And so it's useful in a retreat, whether in the middle or perhaps at the beginning of a period of practice, to just reflect upon our intention, our motivation. What is it that uh, really most deeply moves you to engage in your practice, to come here, to stay here? whether in retreat or in our life, that sense of reconnecting with or contacting our our deeper intentions, our deeper values, that which we most treasure or love or yearn for, in a genuine sense, is something that I think is supported by remembering the truth of death. This is something that uh, you know our world mostly tries to keep quietly hidden away or at a comfortable distance and there's lots of ways in which we don't necessarily need to be confronted with this reality unless it happens to someone close to us either close to us emotionally or close to us in terms of proximity physically the sort of tidying up of this profound and mysterious aspect of life that in the Dharma we don't see it as opposed to life death is the inevitable product in a way we could say or outcome of birth birth and death are polar opposites life encompasses them both and is certainly not negated by the fact of death and in the context of practice it's sometimes useful even to seek out that which reminds us that which allows us to remember what this might mean for us. And uh, the, uh, the graveyard here that we have at Gaia House, we, we regard as something fortunate to have come with this property when we uh, purchased it from the uh, Order of Nuns uh, just over ten years ago now. And of, of course the, uh, the other people who were interested, the holiday home developer and the one wanting to build a retirement home here, neither of them really liked the idea of having a graveyard in the middle of their property. You know, in terms of a holiday home, it might be a bit of a damper. And for an old people's home, well, you can see why some might resist the idea. But for us, it was like, great, we'll take it. And it was one of the reasons, I think, that uh, we actually got the place. Because we actually would honour and cherish that rather than regarded as a problem that we'd rather bulldoze over. And uh, the nuns were appreciative of our recognizing that this is something important. 
And there are so many ways in which we can encounter this teaching, this truth, this reality that are somewhat short of our own sort of uh, full encounter with it, at which point uh, contemplation may or may not be what we uh, are engaged in. But, you know, sometimes it just happens to people. Have you noticed? No, just a, my friend just recently got a diagnosis. Could mean she's going to die. And it just happens out of the blue. You know, we've all seen that. We've all had a friend who we, or a family member or someone we know, who we didn't expect. It's not like they'd sort of come to the end of the road and it was about time. Sure, maybe that too. But sometimes it just happens. It just happens. A dear friend of mine who was just uh, talking to another friend and just pretty much collapsed and there was a, a hemorrhage in the brain in his early 30s with wife and young daughter and he's just gone totally unexpected unpredictable in a way you can never prepare for that and yet Dharma teachings ask us to consider what would our preparation be for that and here we can sense a certain vulnerability about our life. We can start to feel that we easily take it for granted, its continuity. I remember another friend relating to me the story of being in a room in an old building, a very old building, and as he walked just into the next room, the roof fell in, the ceiling fell in, in that room he'd been in. And like so moments before he was in a place that, you know, a couple of tons of concrete just landed on, and he just moved into the next room probably quite randomly that it didn't happen a few minutes earlier and he would have never known about the whole event or a few minutes later and he may not have known about it either. And you just think, gosh, <laughs> you know, look up at the ceiling. Seems pretty solid. But what's it like to just start to confront that reality that the soft human body, a soft human organism, is subject to death, to ageing, to illness, to accident, to the inevitable conclusion of the journey that began with birth. What does that do if we let that in? Because it's so easy to not really, it's like we sort of at an intellectual level, we, I oh, of course, no one's going to, you know, well, I expect, no one's going to be um, telling us, yeah, I'm going to live forever. We don't actually think that. Although it might be sort of attractive. And yet, do we really get it? There's a great story from the Bhagavad Gita where um, Arjuna, who's sort of the hero of the story, is uh, travelling with his charioteer, Krishna, who's you know representing wisdom. And he asks Krishna, in your vast view of the universe... What is the greatest miracle that you see? And Krishna responds, he says, The greatest miracle is that although beings see others dying all around them, they somehow do not believe it will happen to themselves. And it's kind of a miracle, isn't it? It's amazing. How can we forget for a moment? And yet we do. I do. I'm sure you do. You know, we don't sit there on our eating our morning cereal or bowl of porridge thinking, this could be the last breakfast I ever have. And yet, for some people today, the breakfast they had is the last breakfast they will ever have. And yet we don't quite let that in. It's not easy. And it's not about <coughs> kind of being negative about it or sort of it's not like sort of something heavy necessarily but it's actually I think something quite brightening something quite alivening something quite exciting and invigorating to engage with and the Buddha encouraged his followers to go and sit in the charnel grounds well, they didn't have anything even as tidy as a burial ground where you put the bodies in the ground and just have a little stone or sort of piece of wood or some kind of marker on top in the days of the Buddha in that area in India, bodies were just left on the ground often to rot away. 
He suggested to go and sit there and look and smell and be present to the what happens to a body. And said, you know, look at this and just realize your body, my body will not escape this. Whether it be a sort of a freshly delivered corpse or a one that's been there for a while, kind of putrid, or just a skeleton, or just scattered bones eventually turning to dust. He said, contemplate all of these things, because, and contemplate that this body will not escape this. There's a, uh, I haven't seen, I've heard of this epitaph on, a, on an old graveyard that has the, uh, on a gravestone that has the uh, following inscription. It says, Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. Quite an invitation. And so what this asks of us, of course, we can't prepare for death, really. What it asks us is to prepare for life, to live our life in the knowledge that it isn't forever, to not take it for granted. And as I said, this isn't something that's sort of negative or sort of heavy or it doesn't have to be gloomy or, oh, God, we're all going to die, it's hopeless, miserable, might as well you know, give up now, curl up in a corner somewhere. No, it's actually about when we see that, when we let that in, what we come in contact with is its preciousness. It's miraculousness. It's rem- the remarkable fact that it's happening at all. Now, the number of causes and conditions that need to be working or coordinated at a, just simply a biological level for this organism to function. There's just so much going on in here to keep it alive. And although that's its vulnerability, it's also its, its mystery and its magic. And to make good use of this, in the Dharma teachings, the significance, the implication of death, is that it says to us, make good use of this life, this good fortune of human birth of relative health and mind and body. Don't expect or look for perfection or be bemoaning the fact that perfection and body or mind isn't what you got. But be glad it operates mostly okay much of the time. Because this is the opportunity for practice, for awakening, for liberation. This comes to us through this being alive, embodied, but just for a while. And it said, you know, classically in the tradition, those beings with really vast um, lifespans, and you know, this may be just metaphysics or um, sort of cosmology, and who knows, but they're sort of the, in the realms of the devas where they live for, you know, hundreds and thousands and thousands and hundreds of years. They kind of don't really bother, apparently, that much about practice and that sort of thing, because it's like, God, death is such a long way away. There's something valuable about it not being too far away. And it gives us a perspective on what really matters. Like what really matters for you? Keeping this in mind, keeping this close to our heart, is what informs our practice, keeps it genuine, keeps it true, sustains the commitment and the effort that's needed at times to be wholehearted, to engage again and again with mind and body and heart as they unfold moment by moment. And to see that death, in some ways we could regard it as as certain as if it's already happened. It's not like it's uncertain that maybe it'll happen and maybe it won't. It's, it's, there's very few things that have this level of certainty about them in our world or our life. Very few things. 
that you can say, for sure it'll be so. With regard to things that have not yet happened, there's almost nothing you can confidently assert and always be right, that this will come to pass. And really the exception to the rule is the fact of death. This we can be certain. This we know. And so, if we allow that to be in our consciousness, it gives us some space around some of the struggles we might encounter in practice. We realize, okay, this is difficult. Yeah, this isn't easy. Or some of the things we might be aware of the impact of our history. Yeah, that wasn't how I would wish it to be. That was hard, or tragic, or scary, or hurtful. But we see in a larger context, ah, okay, yeah, it wasn't death. It was just hard or difficult. And so there's a way in which we find a natural increase or amplification in our capacity for spaciousness when we see when we see this truth. Don Juan, the uh, South American sort of spiritual teacher and mystic of teacher of uh, Carlos Castaneda, he suggested that one of the results of living close to the truth of death was that it would end the accursed pettiness that plagues human beings. It's a great phrase, I love it. The accursed pettiness. How much we're bothered by small things and, you know, that person said this or my knee's a bit niggly or, God, I wish they'd repaint the, you know, the hallways and guy house a bit flaky, you know. It's like, God, we get perspective, don't we? When we think about the fact, reflect on the fact, open to the fact that we're not here forever. And it transforms how we relate to each other, how we perceive other beings. When we see them as not here forever, somehow I think it allows us to open our hearts when from our minds we might be filled with judgment or reactivity or annoyance or criticism, whether with regard to others or equally ourselves, the fact of death softens the heart, opens the heart. And it also inspires a natural sense of sharing. It's like when, you know, the Buddha said, and not just the Buddha, but spiritual teachers throughout the ages said, you know, you can't take it with you. So you might as well share it, because that's probably the best thing you can do with it. You can't take it with you. So the things that we own, that we have, there's a a line I really like from uh, Khalil Gibran and the Prophet, where... He, he talks about the fact that you can't take it with it with you, and then he says he goes on to say, "Give now, so that the season of giving shall be yours, and not your inheritors." As though the season of giving, the opportunity for giving, is in fact a blessing, something precious to be allowing yourself to have that through practicing generosity, living with generosity. Not somehow hoarding it all up to keep for later, which in the end is only, you know, the benefit of one's inheritors. Oh, it's fine to look after them too. We have children, friends, relatives we want to take care of. But that sense of, oh yeah, letting go, it makes sense really in the face of death. And it also really points to the unreliability of things. How much we try and take refuge in things that are unreliable. In possessions, in worldly circumstances such as jobs, relationships, that sort of thing. In inner experiences, sort of meditative conditions or experiences that we somehow want to take hold of 
they want to take refuge in, that we want to somehow make the place of our abiding. And yet no outer circumstance and no inner condition or experience has that capacity to provide us refuge. And so we talk in the Dharma of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. What this means, that death, I think, really shows us that we need to take refuge in something that is of a different order. And the Buddha, the, that possibility of awakening that is within each of us, and the historical Buddha who, by his awakening, revealed that possibility, manifested that possibility, they're taking refuge in this. This is not something that death threatens. And the Dharma, the teachings of liberation, the truth of the way things are, to take refuge in this. That this is not something that death threatens. And likewise, Sangha, community, those who share a commitment to practice, a life of exploration. And the larger sense of Sangha, which is the interconnectedness of all things, the interrelatedness of all existence, the inseparability of oneself from all that is. And the sense of support we gain through sharing our practice with others, such as here, or simply recognizing and realizing our interconnectedness. That this too is not something subject to death in the way of things, because it's more of a principle, it's not a particularity, it's a truth and a reality rather than an experience or a thing. And so we might at times feel moved to really consciously take refuge, to really say, I give this moment to Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. I give this life. I don't own it anyway. When we see death, we realize we don't own this life anyway. So we're not really giving it away. We're not losing anything by offering it to that which we most deeply love or treasure or value. We're more aligning it with what is already true. This life is already held within Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And to give it to that is simply to allow it to rest in there more freely, more fully, more deeply. And how we live our life at the end of complacency. Death means the end of complacency and of delaying. Seeing death tells us one thing very clearly. You can't assume you'll get to do it later, whatever it might be. I had a very strong experience of this in my uh, early 20s. I was working in a professional job in a plush office in Auckland, which is pretty much as big city as you get in New Zealand. Um, I wasn't particularly enjoying it. I think I knew before I started I wasn't going to enjoy it, but I kind of felt like I needed to do that. I needed to get a career or some money or some security or something. Um, and about a year and a half into my time there, when I was making all these, I had all these plans for leaving and traveling and doing things I wanted to do, but I couldn't quite do it. A very dear friend of mine uh, died. It was quite unexpectedly and tragically. Surgical misadventure. A routine operation went wrong. He was gone. And it really shook me. It really struck me. It uh, was the first time someone I'd been close to, someone I'd loved, was gone in that way. Even though I was living on the other side of the country from him, or the island even. And... In the sadness and the sorrow of it, I also realized that really in his passing he'd given me a profound gift. Because as quite a direct effect of that, I committed myself to quitting my job and eventually traveling. And that's part of, well, that's basically how I came to the Dharma and the life that I have now. And, you know, my friend, we used to call him Radar. Uh, he had rather large ears. His gift to me and his dying, his last gift of many, 
um, was really the message of do it now. And it was really a really precious gift to me. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's 20 years next year. I'm thinking of trying to go to New Zealand and visit his grave. Because it was that important for me. And what would you do if you knew that today was the last day of your life? Or even if you just knew that this was the last time you'd have the opportunity to be on retreat. You know, have you ever got to that place in a retreat where things are going pretty well and you're sort of relaxing and you start to think, oh yeah, I'm pretty settled, this is nice, hmm, good, okay, well, and then we start to think, so maybe next year I'll do a longer retreat or possibly I'll, you know, go to Asia, shave my head, take the robes, you know, all that. And we kind of stop really engaging with this retreat as the one, it suddenly becomes that retreat is the one where it's going to happen, where we're going to really give ourselves uncompromisingly to our practice but what about imagining that this is the last time you can make it a bit more edgy by deciding this is the last day but it doesn't have to get that sort of close or in your face this is if this was the last retreat you had to practice is there any way in which you would do it differently than you're doing it now Would you choose to get up that little bit earlier rather than snuggle into the covers for a little bit more cosiness? Would you choose to sustain that walking period right through to the end of the time you'd set rather than slipping out for a cup of tea and uh, curling up on a sofa? Would you choose to stand or to sit and say, I'm just going to stay here and see what happens? Or I want to notice every single mouthful I take of my lunch. I want to be there for it. And really see if you can. There's a million ways you could express that in terms of that wholeheartedness and practice. And it might look quite different for you to anything I've suggested. It might be that you actually say, right now I'm going to stop pushing myself so hard and being harsh on myself. I'm just really going to stop doing that. But whatever it might be, doing it now. And see what happens. See what it brings. Because living is really, in some ways, a process of preparing for death. Plato, when he was very elderly and near to his own death, and uh, I think rather ill, lying on his bed. One of his uh, students came to him and was asking him about what what was the most important thing in, he'd learnt in his, his life of exploration and deep sort of reflection. And uh, and and what what was his you know advice for life? What would he summarise it as? And he 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 said he responded. He said. Practice dying. Practice dying. How do you do that? I would say you do it by living well. So that you're prepared for death without regrets. So that if today was our day, and one day, today will become our day, not this today, but one of the todays will be our day. And it probably it's quite likely it won't feel that different in terms of being today than this one does. To live with a sense of caring for the welfare of all beings. Which we practice here in terms of non-harming through the precepts. To be aware of completing things in our life. Now, while we're on retreat, this isn't necessarily the time for that. But while we're here, completion means being wholehearted in your intention to practice. To not leave that intention uncompleted while you're here. 
and in other situations, it means following through with what your deepest aspiration asks you, asks of you in a situation. To live for this moment, this is preparation for dying well. And to live with love, as Stephen Levine said, the conclusion of his uh, a year to live practice, where one chooses to live consciously as though one would die at the end of the year. He said, in the end, love was on- the only rational act of a lifetime. Something very powerful in that. Love is the only rational act. Sometimes think love isn't about rationality, and rationality isn't about love. But seen from a true place and cast in the light of death, love is the only rational act of a lifetime. Nothing else makes sense in the end. And we are encouraged to look deeply to see into our experience, to look at what is this that we call being alive? What is this? Because for much of us, fear of death that that prevents us or makes it difficult for us to really face this reality, that fear is not fear of death actually. Because we don't know what death is. We can't be afraid of it. We're afraid of our idea of death. We're afraid of our conceptions and our images and our stories about death. But we're not actually afraid of something that's never happened to us before. We can't be, really. We're only afraid of how we link or associate it with difficult things that have happened to us, like loss or grief or uncertainty or fear. But in the end, what is death? Death is simply the absence of a reference point for I, for self. That's what it confronts us with. The absence of a reference point for the sense of me around which the unconscious and habitual tendency is to configure my world and my existence. And if there's no reference point for it because it's suddenly not there, it's kind of threatening, it's kind of scary, and so we don't want to go there. We can't quite conceive it. I was just as we can't conceive where we were before we were born. and uh, Maybe we don't think about that too much. I was, I was teaching here three weeks ago with a, a Swedish uh, friend, Leela. She was talking about her, her five-year-old boy asking her with this complete innocence. When, she, when he looks at pictures of her when she was young, he asks, where was I when you were my age? Great question. And one could equally ask, and where will she be when he is old? Now, where will we be when our grandchildren are elderly? Where will we be? The real danger is not death. The real danger is living our life unconsciously and on autopilot. because we don't really let in the fact of death. That's the real danger. That's the way we lose our life. Death doesn't take it away. Unconsciousness. And sometimes laziness. Or disinterest. Is what we lose it to. The Buddha said, Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if already dead. And the only death we can really face, we can really engage with, is the entry into the unknown. Entering into the space of, what is this that's alive? What is it to be alive? To strip away the future. The fantasy of continuity. Strip it away. To die to our past. 
which is gone. Where are we left but here, in this moment? This is where the true recognition and the confronting of death brings us. It's to this. And this has a profound capacity to open up our being. And in that opening, of course, it's not easy. It's not easy to sit and honestly and genuinely feel into this truth and reality. It's not easy. We contact, we, we are touched in that place with the losses of our life in our life past, the loss of people that we've cared for and loved, the loss of things or situations that have nourished or supported us, the loss of experiences that we've treasured. Death evokes grief and loss, and this is somehow unescapable. It's part of the package. The willingness to face our life means we need to face this. Having entered birth, we must enter death. There is no way around it. And yet there's a profound gift in a certain way of just having a little bit of notice, foreknowledge around this. And the loss can be tremendous. I remember hearing a story from a friend of someone that he knew who was flying from Geneva in Switzerland to Canada on a plane. And it was a, a late night flight, overnight flight. And at some point in the journey, the, uh, the pilot, you know, came on telling the passengers they had some problems and they're trying to take sort it out, but. Uh, became pretty clear that the, uh, the plane was losing speed and then began losing altitude and then it started to nosedive. And all the people in the plane were screaming and terrified and it was like, and this woman on the plane who was the, uh, the partner of this, person, of this friend of the person I knew, she got out her cell phone. And I guess, you know, at that point the rules about not using your phone because it's going to interfere with the navigation system don't really apply. She called her husband. It was the middle of the night. He'd got up to walk the dog, feeling a little strange, and got up feeling strange and taking the dog out for a walk. He wasn't there. She left a message on his answer- answering machine. And it's kind of amazing. What would you say? What would you say? I love you and goodbye, I guess. And something for me incredibly poignant about that, it kind of, it was almost probably better that he wasn't there I don't know who knows that's what it was it would be pretty hard to be I mean you wouldn't hang up would you you'd be just holding the phone until the last moment but you know on the machine the answer machine there's this message for him when he comes back and just having that moment to say this is what's happening in that situation just for me just touches a sense of just how, how, wow, gosh, the loss, the grief, the tragedy. And that's natural, that's not inappropriate. But if we turn towards that rather than shying away from it, what it's really about is not just about the loss of those people we love or the fact that one day we will lose this life that is precious to us. That's part of it. But it also touches, I think, the sense of the deeper loss of our life, the deepest loss, which is the degree in the way in which we lose a connection with the depth of our being, with the truth of our life, with the essential heart of existence. Losing contact with that. The sacred, we could say, the Dharma, we could say. The awakened heart and mind of life. Losing contact with that is the deepest loss the deepest grief, taking birth in unconsciousness, which we do again and again and again. And that loss is ultimately only healed through the discovery of the possibility of awakening, abiding in the awakened heart, the awakened mind, the awakened life. And it goes together because 
Death tells us, let go. Let go, let go, let go. What you see yourself holding on to, you can do yourself a favour by learning to let it go. Not because you should or because you're supposed to, because it means you'll be good, but out of compassion for your life. Out of a treasuring and a loving of the truth of life that is not about holding, that doesn't need to be grasped or clung onto in order to be revealed. And in fact, is concealed precisely by that grasping and holding on, by the fear, the attempt to create security, solidity, predictability, a sense of identity that's recognisable, familiar and comfortable. All of that activity at some level is trying to stave off the truth of death and is not successful at doing it. And so abandon it, give it up. Don't waste your life on it. It's not a good investment. When we really let go, when letting go is wholehearted, uncompromising and unconditional, life speaks to us in that same language that is uncompromising and unconditional. Life speaks to us of freedom. Seeing how we again and again take hold of things, pull experience to us and claim it as me or mine. Images of ourselves, identities, circumstances. We do this with again and again, here on retreat as in our lives. And yet here we can start to see it more clearly and have the the space and the really the strength and clarity to be able to make the choice that we need to make, which is to relinquish our investment in the hope of constructing a self or a world or a situation around us that will protect us from the truth of life and death and to trust in the truth of life, to not keep taking birth in in forms, images of me or you. There's often debate in Dharma circles, Buddhist sort of uh, worlds around the the meaning and significance of uh, this life and the next. This world and the next. Often the Buddha speaks of, you know, this life and the next. And I kind of wonder what's that about? You know, reincarnation, rebirth, all of this. Sometimes that seems a little bit like a let-out clause, doesn't it? Oh, well, I'm going to die, but that's all right. I can do it again the next time. Maybe there's no hurry. Maybe there's no urgency. You know, you sometimes get the impression that uh, it's sort of like, oh, well, it's just like banking. You know, you put a little bit of sort of good deeds and things in your account and then you uh, turn up next time round, you've got the same account going and, um, you know, you just keep trying to top it up and hope that you'll get a bonus at the end. You know, of course, you know, who knows what happens if the stock market crashes in that particular scenario. But that kind of let out of rebirth, that's not the point. It's not about somehow transferring into the future our possibility. And uh, John Amaro, an English English monk in the Amaroati tradition who's based in America, um, he was once at a conference and uh, someone asked him about uh, the Buddhist view on uh, contraception, sterilization and abortion. And it was a, you know, kind of a charged topic. And uh, I thought he answered it very skillfully. He said, well... You know, as far as I can tell, the whole of the Buddhist teaching and practice is concerned with avoiding rebirth. 
And he's right. So avoiding rebirth for us, what does that mean? Don't take this moment as the continuation of the last one. Because that is to turn this moment into a rebirth. Don't take what you are in this moment to somehow be defined by what happened in a previous one. Because that binds this moment. And don't assume this moment will be replicated or continued into another one. Or that what you are is somehow going to turn up in the next. Don't assume that. Just take this moment. What is to be found right here? To be known right here? To be realized right here? When we don't take birth in this moment, we can discover that which does not die, is not born, is not bound by birth and death. And for this discovery, we are invited, encouraged to practice. Can we notice the very fact of being conscious, awake, alive, aware, mindful, present? What it is to resonate in the midst of life with life itself, filled with it as we are, conscious of it as we can be. What is this? Don't answer this from your mind. The mind cannot know this. The mind is a is a useful tool, but there is territory to which it cannot go. And what is this to be alive? What is this? To not know the last moment or the next, but to be wholehearted in this one. What is revealed in the space that reveals? What is revealed in the fact that life unfolds by the fact that life unfolds? The poem by Red Hawk, a Native American elder, I'd like to speak about, I'd like to share titled, The Time Comes When It Is Easier to Die. He says, We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold, the grey clouds move in like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when you have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you and I guess likewise men. And your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face. Leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you. And to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. While death storms and rages all around, stealing everything in sight, but left holding only a bag full of bones. So it's not a trick. The art of letting go. Is the art of practice. And the art of freedom. 
let's sit together for a minute or two. So may our practice be wholehearted. May our lives be framed with the wisdom and kindness that death suggests. And may we all through our practice and in our lives come to realize the deathless. For our own liberation and the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.